Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. Even if you might feel better about your, quote, good life, because you can find people more wicked than you, you're still guilty yourself. And you can't be hypocritical by pointing out the faults and sins of other people, and you can't rank sin as worse than and yours less than, because even if you have offended God in one way, you're guilty like anybody else. So it's hypocritical to say, I'm not as bad as someone else. Yeah, but you still sin too. Well, what happens if you don't even know the law? And Paul's going to say, you have conscience. In today's message, Pastor Gary will both encourage you and warn you not to look down on others. When you choose to allow Jesus to be a part of your daily life, it can outwardly look as though you have it all together. However, most people know that no one truly has it together. It's important that we not look down on those who have not accepted Jesus or have fallen into temptation. You are no less susceptible to sin than anyone else. We all fall at times. It's important to help and lift one another up. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans, chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. We just started the book of Romans a couple weeks ago, and so we're here now into chapter 2. Just finished chapter 1 last week. So in order for us to understand, again, the context of chapter 2, this is a continuing uh, theme that he's building here through chapters 1 and 2 and into 3. And so again, the main key verse of the book of Romans is chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now again, he mentions here salvation for everyone, and then the question becomes salvation from what? What are we being saved from? And that's verse 18, where he says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So salvation, we're being saved from uh, the wrath of God that is going to come as part of his judgment against the wickedness of men who have suppressed the truth. It's not like we're ignorant. We are accountable before God. We've suppressed the truth. He has revealed himself in various ways. And therefore, he tells us in chapter 1, we are without excuse. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, don't think of wrath. When you think of the wrath of God, don't think of it in human terms, the way we kind of think of wrath as being angry and fist pounding and veins sticking out of our neck. That's not the wrath of God. J.I. Packer said it best. I mentioned this last week as well, that God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing 
that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. So again, as we mentioned last week, God would not be holy and just if he just uh, overlooked uh, sin and just turned the other direction and was passive about it. If he was not just, then he would not be a holy God as well. So God is holy in his love. God is holy in his justice. God is even holy in his wrath. And so Paul is making this argument that the wrath of God must come against all godlessness and wickedness. The human race is guilty before God. Therefore, we all deserve the wrath of God. However, he's going to move into chapter 3 and 4 to tell us that by faith, we can be made righteous because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. But we can't understand righteousness that comes through faith in Christ unless we first embrace and understand our own human condition. And the human condition as it relates to all of us, I don't care where you've come from, I don't care what your culture, I don't care what your race, I don't care what your gender, all of us are guilty of sinning before God. The human race is condemned, and therefore it is just for God to condemn us and to sentence us with his wrath. But because of his mercy, he has made a provision for us to be made righteous before him. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the argument that he's building here. And before we can get to the good news, we have to first accept the bad news that we are all sinners before God. And so God then, as he goes on here in chapter 1, he tells us that God has given a testimony of himself in three ways to all types of people, to the heathen through creation, to the hypocrite through conscience, and to the Hebrew through commandments. That's uh, chapter 1 and into chapter 2. And we mentioned last week, as we finished out the whole subject about how God has revealed himself through creation, how he has uh, you know, revealed himself through the complexity of the universe and the interdependency of everything in our universe. It screams that there is a divine designer behind it. All of this just couldn't possibly happen randomly by chance over long periods of time. With any amount of intelligent exercise, anybody would have to recognize, as I mentioned last week, just like if you were to find a, a watch on a sidewalk, a wristwatch, you know that this just didn't happen accidentally. There's a design designer behind it. There's a manufacturer behind it. Same is true of our universe. And you actually have to suppress the truth to deny that. And that's his indictment against us. He says, men have suppressed the truth. God has clearly revealed himself, one, through creation. And we talked about how in the process of the whole evolutionary theory that the effort has been to actually invert the divine order of God, where originally God's intent is that he is supreme He creates man, gives man dominion over creation. And that's the divine order, but evolution has flipped it upside down and now made creation greater than man and relegated God to some secondary or third place rather and perhaps even non-existent altogether. So that's what we talked about mainly last week. Now, I don't really want to spend too much more time talking about this other than to say, you know, look, I... We've been over this about creation and this inverted divine order, so I don't want to beat a dead horse, to use a pun, I suppose, you know. But I will beat a dead gorilla, because this whole thing happened at the Cincinnati Zoo, where this four-year-old toddler accidentally falls into the, the gorilla, whatever you want to call it, gorilla, what do you call it? 
enclosure. That's a good word. All right. So the guerrilla enclosure. Okay. And so Harambe here now has, they made a decision. The zoo made a decision that in order to save the boy's life, uh, they had to shoot and kill Harambe. And when they did, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, the animal loving world came unglued. Unglued, absolutely unglued. So at, at this website, change.org, they posted this. I'm going to read it to you. And they've asked for people to sign this petition. And here's what this one group is advocating. Quote, in light of the tragedy at the Cincinnati Zoo, in the death of Western lowland gorilla Harambe, and the enormous loss of this critically endangered animal, we would like to pass Harambe's law. So there are legal consequences when an endangered animal is harmed or killed due to the negligence of visitors. If this law is enacted, it will not only protect the animals, but will hold individuals accountable for actions resulting in harm or death of an animal. All right, so that's what this one organization posts, to pass Harambe's law to prosecute people who end up putting this endangered animals like these at risk and resulting in their death, and they would rather see, you know, the parents prosecuted for this. Now listen, none of us was there, okay? I, I don't know if this is negligence on the part of the parents. I do know this. Accidents happen, okay? There's been a lot of good parents who just turn their head for a moment and kids, you know, scurry off and, and get in harm's way. And, you know, this is kind of a difficult thing to be able to just, you know, put all the blame on these parents being so negligent. But now what are, what are we doing? We're going to elevate Harambe, more important, we want to pass Harambe's law. And all of a sudden, the preservation of this kid seems to be tragically overlooked. Now, if you think I'm making more out of this than I should, I want to post a couple of these Twitter feeds, okay, that have been emerging from this. Here's one from Lisa Vanderpump. She's an actress. She said this, Oh, the poor gorilla. He did nothing wrong. If you watch the video, so sad. As a mother, I would have jumped in too. All right. <laughs> and then uh, this guy, who's also an actor, uh, John Fuglesang, he said, uh, If I ever let my toddler fall into a gorilla enclosure, please leave the gorilla alone and just shoot me. This is incredible. And this one, this one is the worst. This is Joseph Kahn. He's a Grammy award-winning uh, music producer. Joseph Kahn said, quote, if your kid purposefully falls into a gorilla cage, you should just tell your kid goodbye. That's called Darwinism. Isn't that incredible? The kinds of things that people are saying. So, you know, if you say, you know, you're making more out of this, I, I don't think so. Because when I read this, this is exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about here where Paul says that when a society rejects God and does whatever it can to eliminate God from the culture, you have an inversion of the divine order where creation and animals and the planet and, you know, go green and carbon footprint and, and PETA and all this kind of stuff is elevated higher than human life. You know, where are the protesters over another 125,000 babies who were aborted just today? Okay, that's what happens. You remove God from the equation, creation becomes prominent, Man is secondary, God is somewhat eliminated altogether, and then you got a guy like Joseph Kahn talking about, you know, this is just Darwinism. This is the, what is he implying? Survival of the fittest. What he's saying is, okay, so what that a toddler who weighs maybe 40 pounds 
is outweighed and muscled by a gorilla who's 450 pounds, may the best man win. And this is, this is just a tragic view of our culture where now as a result of removing God from the equation, this is the kind of thing uh, that happens. So when we talk here in chapter 1 about God giving a testimony of himself to the heathen through creation, in chapter 2, now as we begin to read this, he moves on to the second argument, which is that God has revealed himself to the hypocrite through conscience. He's going to talk here about conscience to the one who is self-righteous. And you're going to notice here in the first part of chapter 2, he divides chapter 2 into two sections. The first part of chapter 2 has to deal with people who consider themselves to be self-righteous, and he talks primarily about the Gentile who doesn't even have the law of God, but this is what typically happens. When people don't even know the Bible, they don't even know God's commandments, they typically will begin to evaluate themselves as to whether or not they're good or bad in comparison to other people. And they will begin to rank themselves and they'll begin to find other people who are worse than they and they will begin to justify themselves. And Paul's going to say, hey, you're still guilty too. Even if you might feel better about your, quote, good life because you can find people more wicked than you, you're still guilty yourself. And you can't be hypocritical by pointing out the faults and sins of other people, and you can't rank sin as worse than and yours less than, because even if you have offended God in one way, you're guilty like anybody else. So it's hypocritical to say, I'm not as bad as someone else. Yeah, but you still sin too. Well, what happens if you don't even know the law? And Paul's going to say, you have conscience. You have a God-given moral compass to know the basics of right and wrong. Look at his argument here, chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Okay, now, please understand the difference between making judgments and being judgmental. Uh, Sometimes I hear people say that, you know, someone else has no right to speak into their life because you're judging me. Don't judge me, you know, and take the the beam out of your own eye, and people like to quote a little scripture verse, even if they don't know the Bible, you know, stop judging me, dude, you know, you have no right to judge me. Okay, first of all, understand the difference. Jesus actually said in John 7, 44, he said, stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgments. Did you know that Jesus actually told us to judge? But there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. That's why Jesus corrects it. He says, stop judging by mere appearances. You may not know all the information, and if you jump to a conclusion, you're being judgmental. But if something is clear and obvious by their actions or by their words, you can make a clear judgment. For example, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul was rebuking the Corinthian church, why was he rebuking them in chapter 5? He says, because you're putting up with sin in your own congregation. There is a man in your church who is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it wasn't as incestuous as that sounds because it implies actually a stepmother, not really his biological mother, when it says his father's wife, that dad had remarried and the son was having an affair with his stepmom now. And Paul says, shouldn't you have put this man out of your congregation rather than just comforting him and like, oh, it's okay, bro, we're all sinners, bro, all right? 
Sloppy agape. That's what that is. And so Paul says, no, you should have put this guy out of your fellowship. There needs to be some church discipline in a matter like that. Well, how can there be church discipline if nobody's supposed to judge? Because you're supposed to stop judging by mere appearances, John 7, and make right judgments. There is a place and a time for us to lovingly confront and hold each other accountable. And in order to do that, you have to make some judgments, but you better know the facts and you better weigh it against the word of God. And you better not come out with a critical finger pointing and being judgmental because then that's wrong. That's hypocritical. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's okay in certain circumstances to make right and proper judgments. Don't just, but rather don't be judgmental. Don't look at other people as you're worse than I am because we're all guilty before God. And so in verse two, he says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment, when you're being judgmental on them and yet do the same things, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Okay, he's saying it's hypocritical. He says, verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing, this is a great verse, that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. You know, sometimes people have this view of God that He kind of beats you into repentance. God is a merciful, patient, and loving God. And I can tell you in my own life, the thing that moves me towards God is when I begin to realize he's so patient and forgiving with me. And it moves us toward God because it breaks our heart and we begin to realize, God, you you have been so patient and you've been putting up with my miserable life. And so I'm just so thankful. It's his kindness that leads us towards repentance. And Paul is saying here is if you're just judgmental towards other people, you are worse in terms of the wrath that you are expressing than God is who is patient and loving towards those that he wants to lead into repentance. And how do we think that we come to repentance except also by God's kindness that leads us there? In verse 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. And he quotes there from Psalm 62. In verse 7, he says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, meaning God's glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All right, so there's a little bit of, it sounds like works-oriented instruction here, but Don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not saying if you're good enough, you can get to God. He's saying because you're not good enough, you can't get to God. Okay? This is the same argument, basically, that Jesus made in Luke chapter 18. You don't need to turn there, but there's this conversation that Jesus has with with a rich young ruler. In Luke chapter 18, the story is also given to us in Mark chapter 10. And this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus 
responds after he asks him a question. Why do you call me good? He says, no one is good except God alone. But then he says this. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now stop and think about that answer for just a moment. Because this guy comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why does Jesus not say, if you believe in me, your sins will be forgiven and that's how you get eternal life? I mean, that's the gospel message, isn't it? Why is it that Jesus instead quotes from the Ten Commandments? And he mentions five of the Ten Commandments. And actually, what's unique about Jesus' answer is, Jesus focuses on the second tablet of the testimony. Now, the commandments were broken into two tablets. One through four were on tablet one. Five through ten were on tablet two. Five through ten had to do with the horizontal, your relationship with one another. This guy had those things down. Jesus quotes the law here. He says, well, don't commit adultery, having to do with the horizontal, our relationship to one another. Don't murder one another. Don't steal one another. Don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. That's all one another. Why is it that Jesus did not point to himself, instead he pointed to the law? Because he's highlighting for this guy that in theory... If you could obey everything in the law, you'd be good enough. And so this guy had the second tablet down. He's like, okay, I'm good to go. Got it down. And Jesus then adds, he says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And what was Jesus doing? He was highlighting a couple of the commandments on the first tablet. Having to do with have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. This guy's possession had become his God, and this guy's possession had become idols to him. And so Jesus confronted him on the vertical. The first tablet is about your relationship with God, the vertical. Oh, this guy had the horizontal, fine. But it was the vertical that was lacking. And when this guy realized that he had violated the first part of the tablets, the first few commandments, he recognized in himself that he had fallen short. Sadly, though, tragically, he left and walked away and didn't respond. But when Jesus says all this about the law, in theory, he was saying, if you could just keep all the commandments, that's how you get eternal life. What was he pointing out? You can't keep all the commandments, can you? And because you can't keep all the commandments, you need a savior. Now, Paul is making a similar argument here. He's like, you know, if if you would just do good, then you'll get eternal life. If you do evil, you're going to be sentenced and you're going to experience the wrath of God. But the fact is that even the hypocrite, if you will, who doesn't even have the commandment of Moses, who doesn't even know the law, you're guilty because you know you haven't done everything good and right in your life, have you? And he goes on then to build the case further. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law, as he's addressing the the Gentiles here primarily, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That's the next group. He's going to talk about the Jews. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, here's the word, their consciences, also bearing witness, 
and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of Romans. Isn't Paul's faith inspiring? Did you know you can download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you wherever you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word right at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you in person, too, at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m., or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to shake your hand and answer any questions you may have about the study about Cornerstone Chapel, or about how you can have a relationship with God. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can listen to additional teachings from this study or read accompanying resources on our site as well. Just look under the Teachings tab. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the Book of Romans right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know